The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it's my honor to welcome my guest, Mr. Steve Smith. He is Director of Agriculture for Red Gold Tomatoes, as well as the Chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition. I met Mr. Smith years ago. We were on a panel talking about food and agriculture and health, and I have continued to follow his work, specifically looking at the herbicide dicamba and how that might influence or impact the success of farmers on the economic line. And I, of course, am interested in herbicide use through the public health lens. So it's my honor to welcome you. Thanks for being with me, Mr. Smith. Glad to be here, and we've had a good relationship through the years. Yes, I'm very grateful for that. I want to ask you first, as Director of Agriculture for Red Gold Tomatoes, can you just give us a little history about your company? I believe you had told me that if you eat any tomato products anywhere, you're likely to consume a tomato product that comes from Red Gold. Well, we do command a a large market share, particularly in, in the private label world. And so there is a really good chance whenever I travel, I like to just walk through grocery stores and go find if I can see our product. And I almost always find our product in a grocery store, no matter where I'm at. Well, I am a big promoter of tomato products, as you might imagine, as a dietitian. I'm sitting here with the brand new American Institute for Cancer Research Report, which recommends consuming a diet that is rich in whole grains, vegetables, and fruits. And tomatoes, we've known for years, help protect us against cancer. And they're very powerful, and they're also delicious. So thank you. And most of your tomatoes are grown where? We grow all of our tomatoes in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. And to your comments about the health benefits, I would even add that processed tomatoes add a degree of extra help with lycopene availability even than what fresh tomatoes do. That's exactly right. And so I believe that most of the studies thus far have looked at tomatoes' protective properties for against prostate cancer and certainly just as a powerful antioxidant, anti-inflammatory kind of food that we want to have as part of our healthy diet. And you're right, it's so interesting because oftentimes we hear, you know, that fresh is always best, but indeed with heat and processing, sometimes we can concentrate those beneficial nutrients. So thank you for adding that. Now, Red Gold contracts with family farmers, as I understand it. Is that right? Yes, 100% of our production is done through contract growers. Okay. And about, do you know how many farmers Red Gold employs? We dealt with 46 local farmers this last year. And uh, we're very proud to have what we consider the cream of the crop. Yeah. So what brings you to the table when it comes to dicamba, the herbicide, and what led you to be involved with the Save Our Crops Coalition? Sure, it's it's a great question. We became involved with all of this after suffering a 
quite a bit of off-target movement of some other herbicides back in the early and mid-2000s. And we recognized that we needed to do some more proactive approach to solving the problem ahead of time versus reacting to a problem after it occurs. And so to that end, we were instrumental in the founding of an organization called at that time Drift Watch through mm-hmm. Purdue University and now is called Field Watch. And uh, it actually began in, in my office with a Purdue representative. So we, we saw that early on and wanted to become more proactive in protecting our crops. In about 2007, I became aware of what was getting ready to happen with the new genetics with dicamba. And knowing the problems we had had and knowing the history of dicamba, it takes an older guy like me to understand the history of dicamba because most younger farmers uh, never used it because people had given up using it because it was too dangerous. Hmm. You know, it's interesting that you mention that because in doing research for our interview, I found a report that was published from the Journal of Pesticide Reform in the spring of 1994, if you can believe it. And it was about the herbicide dicamba, and there were reports of groundwater contamination and dicamba's use on corn predominantly. So I don't know if the dicamba-contaminated groundwater in the United States has been cleaned up, but I would anticipate that if we went to many of the agricultural rural communities, we still might find dicamba-contaminated groundwater. What do you think? Well, I really would have no information to confirm or deny that. I just knew that growing up as a young guy, I'd drive down the road and I would see fields that had been damaged, and I knew where it came from. And so intrinsically, when we were already having some issues with off-target movement, to add in a product like dicamba that I knew would not stay where it was supposed to go. It really triggered a an alarm in me that we were at risk as a specialty crop producer, in our case tomatoes, but all the specialty crops, we were all at risk of what was about to come. When you use the term specialty crops, I think it's important for us to understand that these are the fruits and vegetables and nuts that we depend on really to protect public health. I can't think of any dietary recommendation. I mentioned the American Institute of Cancer Research, but the Heart Association, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, National Institutes of Health, all of those recommendations may not use the word specialty crop, but we are talking about the same thing, and that is fruit, the fruits and vegetables that keep us well. So, We probably should step back and talk about how dicamba came to be used in such a renewed fashion. So it's my understanding that we had genetically modified crops introduced that were resistant to glyphosate. We thought that was a great idea at the time. It would make the farmer's life easier. All they'd have to do is spray once. It would take care of the weeds. And we thought that glyphosate-containing herbicides were less powerful or less damaging than some of the others on the market at the time. But over the course of history, what weeds do and what pests do as well is they develop resistance. So it's my understanding that it's because of these resistant weeds that we have had to introduce now 
new herbicide-resistant traits, including both 2,4-D and dicamba. What would you add to that? That's exactly right. The whole movement to the the Roundup glyphosate-ready crops was a real boon to farmers, and it allowed people to expand their acres. It made good farmers out of everyone. As you just drove down the road, my grandfather would have just been amazed to see the clean fields that occurred after the introduction of glyphosate-tolerant crops. The issue arose, though, when we did not do a very good job at stewarding this new technology, and we started using it over and over and over again. And then it's exactly as you describe: Weeds get pretty smart, and they figure out a way to uh, get around that. And that's exactly what happened. And we didn't even take the warning signs very serious. As early as uh, early 2000s, there were indications that we were beginning to get some resistant crops. But yet, at that time, corn wasn't yet resistant to Roundup but it became that way in the early 2000s. And so not only were we doing soybeans and cotton, we started doing field corn. And so people were using Roundup solely as their entire weed control system year after year after year. And it didn't take long for the weeds to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so now we're seeing farmers using both the Roundup, as well as these additional herbicides. Is that correct? That's correct. And and because of the resistant weed situation, there are some uh, really tough weeds to control that figured the system out, particularly uh, a family of weeds called pigweeds, where the number of seeds that are produced by one plant can reach up to 800,000, a million seeds per plant. Mm. And so if you get one resistant weed out into a field, it didn't take long to get a, a weed resistance issue uh, on your farm and as where the wind blew on everyone's farm because the same thing was happening everywhere. It seems like Mother Nature is trying to tell us something, right? She chose a very interesting plant to uh, make resistant. Let me ask you something. I was driving from Arkansas into Missouri this past summer, and I saw a very well-constructed sign that said, Farmers Need Dicamba. It didn't say who funded the sign, where it came from, but I stopped and took a photograph of it because I thought, this is really curious to me. Do you think farmers really need dicamba? And who do you think put that sign up there? Well, I I wouldn't have any idea about who put it up, but there is a certain segment of the farming population that likes easy solutions. Mm. And the introduction of dicamba will be another easy solution. Yeah. Uh, But it it will go the same way as glyphosate in terms of weed resistance as we move on. And people have forgotten about the problems of dicamba. They've tried to make new formulations, but they really have never fixed the basic problem, and that is that dicamba moves where it's not intended to go. Exactly right. And, of course, it harms non-target plants. And what we're seeing, at least from you know my neck of the woods, I'm aware of grapes, tomatoes, whole peach tree orchards, berries that have been harmed by this herbicide because it moves, doesn't it? It's really interesting that it kind of moves with 
the seasons or the temperature, if there's a high temperature, and I am assuming that humidity plays a role as well, how does this drift happen? Well, it happens in a number of ways. There's the old traditional method of just uh, direct drift, what we call as where when you're making the application, the wind is blowing towards a sensitive crop and it just actually moves the molecules, the spray molecules, before they ever hit the ground or ever hit their target plant. And uh, so that, that's, a, that's a problem that we in agriculture have had to deal with forever. It's w- what our problem were, was earlier with the glyphosate off-target movement. It's just when the winds are blowing wrong, it blows towards a sensitive crop and it damages them. But the difference with dicamba is that there's a second mode of action of how it moves, and that's called volatility. And the molecule actually hits its target plant or hits the ground and lands there. And then uh, it can, up to three, four, five days later, uh, return to a gaseous form, pick up and move again to a sensitive plant and cause injury. The other compounds that we've been talking about and that are still available for people to use do not do that. And that's what the difference is with, with dicamba. You can follow the label with dicamba when you make the application and everything can be just fine. And through certain atmospheric conditions, it can pick up and move later on and blow towards a crop and damage it without any intention that that's going to happen. But it happens. We know it happens and we're hiding our head in the sand if we try to think that it doesn't happen. So this herbicide can move for miles. Yeah, there's, uh, if you go back at the University of Iowa, or uh, Iowa State, back in the 70s, there's a lot of research that shows that it can move several miles and three, four, five days later after application. Now, some of the new formulations claim that they're low volatile, but none of them claim that they are not volatile. And there's a big difference between that. I, I liken it to if statistically you were going to get hit by a vehicle, uh, you would rather get hit by an SUV than an 18-wheeler. But if you're dead, it doesn't really matter which one. Yeah. Let me take one minute, Mr. Smith, and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Mr. Steve Smith. He is Director of Agriculture for Red Gold Tomatoes, which is based in Indiana. He is also Chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition. Mr. Smith, for a long time, I know that you have been working with the Save Our Crops Coalition. You have been meeting in Washington, D.C. with leaders at EPA have you made any ground? I believe we actually have. A lot of people might not recognize it because the re-registration of dicamba has occurred and someone might say, well, you've been totally ineffective. But I think we made ground. Uh, one of the biggest things that we did early on in 2013, we petitioned the uh, EPA for an environmental impact study on dicamba, and that effectively delayed the introduction of this product for three years, and it still was a little late in coming even after that. So we made a big splash about at least delaying some of the problems for several years. Mm. Since that time, we've also been very involved with the manufacturers and EPA suggesting some of the restrictions that have actually made it onto the label 
that have made the product somewhat safer. Obviously, it's not been uh, made completely safe, but my earlier comments about direct drift, we were instrumental in getting the language placed in the label that the wind may not be blowing towards a sensitive crop during application. It has to be blowing away. That was our original language, and we have worked on some other smaller issues within the label, but that was one of the bigger things that we did help accomplish. Mm -hmm. Now, it's my understanding that some states have mandated cutoff use dates to help protect against the volatility damage. Arkansas, I believe the Arkansas State Plant Board voted to consider allowing dicamba use in 2019 with a June 15th cutoff. Uh, Where I live in Missouri, I believe the cutoff is mid-July. I don't know how that might change in 2019. I've also been made aware of the fact that state departments of agriculture cannot keep up with the calls regarding damage. And there was an article that was published in the Progressive Farmer that spoke about how much money is being spent by state agriculture departments to try to keep up with the calls that they're getting and the investigations they're having to make. For example, Indiana's Office of the State Chemist spent roughly $1.2 million beyond their normal budget dealing with dicamba in 2018. And to me, that's a red flag saying, whoa, if it's a state department, that means those are my tax dollars that, that are being used. You're, you're absolutely correct. This has been a really terrible situation from a budgetary standpoint on all those state associations. There's a group called the APCO, American Association of Pesticide Control Officers, and they represent all of the states that have to deal with this. And they sent a letter to EPA just really begging for relief because of what it's doing to their time and budgets. And, and, um, This might sound a little flippant, but it was said in a public meeting, so I don't mind sharing it, that the Indiana State Chemist kind of took on a a new nickname this year as the Dicamba Response Team because it so totally took over their entire uh, budgetary and staff time of just investigating Dicamba claims for two years now that um, they are really desperate to find some solutions to help out. Mm. It's frightening from a crop loss perspective. And I, I've been reading articles about farmer suicides lately and how, how really close they are to the edge with regard to economic stability. And so when I think about a farmer, I know there's been a, a farmer who has lost an orchard of peach trees, for example. There are farmers who have lost their CSAs. And this was their income. What is their recourse uh, they really have very little in the way of recourse, particularly if it's a major loss. Number one, you'd have to prove where the problem came from. And if it's a volatility episode, that can be pretty difficult to prove where it came from because uh, it could be from multiple sources and from uh, quite a ways away. But if it's a direct drift, you kind of know where it came from. But here's the problem with all that. Most farmers have liability insurance to cover spray drift injury to their neighbors in the, in the range of twenty five fifty thousand dollar policy limits. Beyond that, there is no recourse to get compensation unless you want to sue your neighbor and take his farm over. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the real acrimony that has been brought about by all this is, is just damaging, and it, it's so sad as people have lost relationships. They sit on church boards with people that have injured them, and it, it's just really become a really sad situation in the rural communities over this. I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things that we need to consider when it comes to public health is our sense of community and our social relationships. So it's not just the foods that we eat that protect our health, but it's also the sense of being a part of a larger community. And I think about rural communities that I drive through that are already hurting. And it's my understanding from people who live in rural communities that they have these very important dependency really relationships on their neighbors. You know, if if one is in trouble, the other one bails them out. So if you pit one neighbor against another, I can see how that would be very harmful emotionally. Yeah. Again, you have to live and work in, in these communities. And it's one thing, you know, not to always agree with something, but it's another when you're forced to either turn your neighbor into a regulatory agency or to actually have to uh, go after compensation. And the problem with compensation, not only might there not be enough insurance available, it can take an awfully long time. Just last year, we settled a drift case from 2010. It took eight years to settle it. And uh, people just really can't afford to wait that long to get any settlement from their crop losses. And the bigger the case, the longer it's going to take to get that settlement. Right. So you've been working in this area for a long time. If you had a magic wand or if if you could change the course, you know, what is your vision for sustainable production of specialty crops as well as commodity crops going into the future? Well, it's real simple. For specialty crops, we just have to have our neighbors that are growing commodity crops have a system where they do not harm our crops. And it seems so natural and normal to say that, but you would be surprised at the number of people that say, you know, well, we actually had an instance where one of our farmers had his neighbor come in and and lay a bill on his table saying, it's going to cost me more money to raise my soybeans because you're raising your tomatoes. And so here's what I have to spend to have a different herbicide program and you owe me this. Wow. And, and so it's a real-life example of, of the problems that are, are going on. And one of the quotes one of the, that I really love from a retired weed scientist in Arkansas, Dr. Ford Baldwin, said, we know we can raise uh, soybeans without dicamba, but you can't raise your crops with dicamba. Mm-hmm. And I think farmers are a very independent group of people. They like working independently. They like being in charge of what they're doing. But this type of herbicide program really throws a wrench in that. And I feel like they need a way out. Are there state universities and other organizations working towards a way out? They definitely are. There's um, a a growing need and and demand for um, 
different types of crops that might be non-GMO. They might be a specialty type of oil that one produces. And so there's, there's all these different types of uh, mechanisms to uh, control weeds in, in different types of farm systems. And, uh, universities are doing a, a good job looking at those, but they're complicated. They require a, a, a lot higher management level on the farm. They take more time during a busy season. And the adoption level of those will probably be low with all the barriers that all that brings. Mm. Well, I'm sitting here with several reports, as I mentioned, about the public health impacts of certainly herbicide use, as well as the loss of these health-promoting crops. And if people want to learn more about how they can get involved to protect the crops that are protecting us, where would you recommend that they go? Every state would have a, an agency that would be very familiar with how rules are made and how to affect what happens there. Like in Indiana, it's the uh, Pesticide Review Board. And on that board, it, it's an appointed board by the governor, and there is a public representative. And so in Indiana, uh, working through the public representative on the review board or any of the representatives on the review board would be one way of doing it. And uh, other states would have similar types of agencies. And uh, so people would just need to do a little bit of research to find out who the regulatory people are, how decisions get made, and how to contact them and to uh, let their feelings be known. Normally, it's not a legislative process. Normally, your state representatives or state senators or uh, those types of people are not going to be the ones that can really make a difference, but it's these other regulatory bodies that make the decisions that people need to find out where they're at and how to get in touch with them. And then there's also Drift Watch and Field Watch. A Drift Watch and Field Watch is a uh, organization that was set up to enhance communication between applicators and sensitive crop growers and beehives. I and, see. Uh, so um, when a producer of a sensitive crop registers with Field Watch or Drift Watch or the Bee Check, it gets communicated to applicators of where these fields are, where these beehives are, so that people can be more careful. And it's really made a difference in, in our world. I, I mentioned that we had a lot of problems in the mid-2000s. Since uh, coming with and being a member of Field Watch and participating, our annual drift cases have reduced down to one or two, and this year we had zero. And so this uh, communication and collaboration with applicators has really been effective, and, and that's the reason that FieldWatch has expanded now into 19 states mm. in one Canadian province, and we're hopeful about three or four more states are going to come on this year. What is the website that you want people to go to for the Save Our Crops Coalition? It's just www.saveourcrops.org. Okay. I want to make sure that people can learn more about your terrific organization and work together to protect the farmers who are growing the crops that protect our health, as well as protecting all farmers so that 
Nobody has to lose their bottom line. We have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios. And most of all, I want to thank my guest for all of his hard work, Mr. Steve Smith, Director of Agriculture for Red Gold Tomatoes and Chairman of the Save Our Crops Coalition. I'll provide a link to his organization, saveourcrops.org. Thank you, Mr. Smith, for spending time with me. Uh, We appreciate the chance to uh, tell our message. 